Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You are listening to the Derek Izzy Show. Welcome back. Today's show is brought to you by Solitaire Cubed. What is that? Everyone plays Solitaire on their computer, right? You play it on your phone, on your tablet, and how good are you? You might be the best player that you know, or maybe you just want to test your skills against other people. Solitaire Cubed allows you to do this for real money. If you use promo code Derek Izzy when you sign up, D-E-R-E-K-I-Z-Z-I, you will get $20 when you make your first deposit. Solitaire Cubed allows you to play for real money, tournaments, one-on-one, whatever you want to do. You can compete for as little as a one-on-one match costing 60 cents to enter. Or if you're really feeling lucky, you can play in the $100, $200, $300 matches. It's up to you. The more you risk, the more you can win. I've been playing this game for two years. $20 for free just by being a listener to The Derek Izzy Show. Use promo code Derek Izzy when you download Solitaire Cubed. $20 free when you make your initial deposit. And good luck. Maybe, just maybe, you'll compete against me in a future tournament. Fourteen-year-old Bobby had just finished a Little League baseball game. He was on his way home. It was a short walk from the field. A car pulls up beside him. There's two men in the car, and they ask Bobby if he needs a ride. Of course, it's a short walk. Bobby says no, he's fine. But the two men persist. They ask Bobby if he can give them a recommendation on a tennis racket. Bobby's an avid tennis player. This gets Bobby close to the car. When he gets close, Bobby recognizes his cousin being in the car. Bobby's convinced that it's okay. He decides to get in the car and take the two men up on their offer to give him a ride home. Once in the car, a struggle would ensue. Bobby would be viciously beaten, hit over the head with a chisel, having his mouth duct taped shut so that he can no longer scream, beaten over and over again, until he finally stopped moving. Bobby's barely recognizable corpse would be discovered in a drainage ditch several days later. 
Nathan and Richard had met in 1920. They both came from prominent Chicago families. They lived a life of privilege. They both grew up in a neighborhood called Kenwood. That was in a suburb of Chicago, largely Jewish neighborhood filled with mansions. Definitely a well-to-do upper-class neighborhood. Richard and Nathan would have everything that they needed to be successful in life. The two of them didn't seem to have much in common, but they both had superior intellect and a strong curiosity. Nathan's father, he was a businessman and owner of a large shipping company. Nathan was extremely intelligent, going to the University of Chicago at age 15. By age 19, he was studying law at the University of Chicago. Richard had a similar background. His father was the vice president for a company called Sears and Roebuck. Back then, his estimated worth was around $10 million. Richard graduated high school at the age of 14 and also went on to the University of Chicago. He struggled a little bit, dealing with personal demons, and he actually wasn't really ready to experience college at such a young age, and his grades suffered because of it. It was alleged that Nathan had an IQ of 200, an extremely gifted student. He spoke nine languages. Nathan and Richard would start to hang out, and their friendship would start to develop. Richard really struggled to make friends, but he started to connect with Nathan. The two would form a dangerous bond. Both of them growing up in rich families, they kind of considered them to be the elite and not bound by the regular rules of society. They definitely viewed themselves as superior to everyone else. Richard was the more outspoken of the two. Nathan kind of followed along. Richard was extremely good-looking, slender, muscular, tall, very attractive smile, but he got bored easily. He would often engage in activities like stealing cars, smashing the windows of a neighborhood storefront, or just setting things on fire. Richard was definitely drawn to experimentation. Each time he got away with his actions, he came back and tried to do something even more dangerous. Nathan, on the other hand, he would always boast about his accomplishments. And in Richard's effort to raise the stakes, he came up with a plan to kidnap a child, and then hold that child for ransom. The decision was made to kidnap a random child, ask for a ransom of $10,000, and get away with the perfect crime. A workman walking near Wolf Lake saw two feet sticking out of a drainage pipe. Several other workmen joined him after asking for help. What they discovered was Bobby's corpse. He had been badly beaten and mutilated. At the time, the local area was shocked that something like this could happen. The police had no idea who did it. Bobby's face was no longer recognizable 
as it had been covered with acid. This was one of the most brutal murders in the Midwest. With no suspects and no idea where to start, police surveyed the area. They found a pair of eyeglasses that were laying on the ground near Bobby. The hinge on these eyeglasses was kind of unique. It was something that the officer really hadn't seen before. With very little evidence to go on, police were able to track down the sale of that pair of eyeglasses, for there were only three pairs with that hinge purchased in Chicago. Verifying that the first two people on that suspect list had rock-solid alibis and were nowhere near the scene of the crime, the police focused their efforts on Nathan because he had purchased a set of eyeglasses with that same hinge. Police brought both Nathan and Richard in for questioning, and after hours and hours of interrogation, the two broke down and admitted to the crime, each blaming the other for actually committing the murder. And with that, the trial was set. One of the most famous lawyers of the time, Clarence Darrow, Extremely high profile, very expensive. He was brought in to defend Richard and Nathan. At the time, this was one of the most publicized trials in the history of the American judicial system. Witnesses would speak, psychologists and psychiatrists would be on the stand, giving their analysis, and the plea entered by Clarence Darrow on behalf of his clients was guilty. By entering this guilty plea, the agreement was that the death penalty would be off the table. Clarence Darrow gave a speech at the end of the trial where he said, This terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? It is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. Now, Your Honor, I have spoken about the war. I believed in it. I don't know whether I was crazy or not. Sometimes I think perhaps I was. I approved of it. I joined in the general cry of madness and despair. I urged men to fight. I was safe because I was too old to go. I was like the rest. What did they do? right or wrong, justifiable or unjustifiable, which I need not discuss today, it changed the world. For four long years, the civilized world was engaged in killing men, Christian against Christian, barbarian uniting with Christians to kill Christians, anything to kill. It was taught in every school, even in the Sunday schools. The little children played at war, the toddling children on the street, do you suppose this world has ever been the same since? How long, Your Honor, will it take for the world to get back the humane emotions that were slowly growing before the war? How long will it take the calloused hearts of men before the scars of hatred and cruelty shall be removed? We read of killing 100,000 men in a day. We read about it, and we rejoiced in it. If it was the other fellows who were killed, we were fed on flesh and drank blood, 
even down to the prattling babe. I need not tell you how many upright, honorable young boys have come into this court charged with murder, some saved and some sent to their death. Boys who fought in this war and learned to place a cheap value on human life. You know it and I know it. These boys were brought up in it. The tales of death were in their homes, their playgrounds, their schools. They were in the newspapers that they read. It was part of the common frenzy. What was life? It was nothing. It was the least sacred thing in existence, and these boys were trained to this cruelty. It will take 50 years to wipe it out of the human heart, if ever. I know this, that after the Civil War in 1865, crimes of this sort increased marvelously. No one needs to tell me that crime has no cause. It has as definite a cause as any other disease. And I know that out of the hatred and bitterness of the Civil War, crime increased as America had never seen before. I know that Europe is going through the same experience today. I know it has followed every war, and I know it has influenced these boys so that life was not the same to them as it would have been if the world had not made red with blood. I protest against the crimes and mistakes of society being visited upon them. All of us have a share in it. I have mine. I cannot tell and I shall never know how many words of mine have given birth to cruelty in place of love and kindness and charity. He goes on to say, Have they any rights? Is there any reason, Your Honor, why their proud names and all the future generations that bear them shall have this bar sinister written across them? How many boys and girls, how many unborn children will feel it? It is bad enough as it is, God knows. It is bad enough however it is. But it's not yet death on the scaffold. It's not that. And I ask, Your Honor, in addition to all that I have said to save two honorable families from a disgrace that never ends and which could be of no avail to help any human being that lives. Now I must say a word more and then I will leave this with you where I should have left it long ago. None of us are mindful of the public. Courts are not. Juries are not. We placed our fate in the hands of a trained court thinking that he would be more mindful and considerate than a jury. I cannot say how people feel. I have stood here for three months as one might stand at the ocean, trying to sweep back the tide. I hope the seas are subsiding and the wind is falling, and I believe they are, but I wish to make no false pretense to this court. The easy thing and the popular thing to do is to hang my clients. I know it. Men and women who do not think will applaud. The cruel and thoughtless will approve. It will be easy today. But in Chicago, and reaching out over the length and breadth of the land, more and more fathers and mothers, the humane, the kind and the hopeful, who are gaining an understanding and asking questions not only about these poor boys, but about their own, these will join in no acclaim at the death of my clients. Clarence Darrow goes on to plead for the lives of his clients. In the end, Richard and Nathan were sentenced to life in prison. The true motive of this crime may have never been revealed, whether it was a prank gone wrong or whether there was some sexual aspect to it. During the trial, 
there seemed to be a sexual motivation that maybe Nathan and Richard were in a sexual relationship with each other. Clarence Darrow's argument of putting the death penalty on trial had worked. With these life sentences, Nathan and Richard were off to the penitentiary. Life in the penitentiary would be very different for each of these men. Several years later, after being imprisoned, Richard would be murdered by another inmate. The inmate alleged that Richard was making sexual advances on him, and he used a razor to end Richard's life. Nathan, however, completed his sentence in prison, and after being denied parole over and over and over, after 33 years in prison, he was released in 1958. He wrote a book called Life Plus 99 Years, and he set up a foundation to be funded by royalties from that book. Upon his release, he moved to Puerto Rico. After working as an x-ray technician in a prison hospital and continuing to further his education while in prison, he was able to exit prison with a vast amount of knowledge. While living in Puerto Rico, he got married, and in the 1960s, he actually started returning to the Chicago area where he was reunited with old friends and he could visit the graves of his parents. Finally, at age 66, after suffering a heart condition, in 1971, Nathan would die. After spending his time in prison, Nathan would outlive almost everyone who was associated with their trial. To this day, we still don't know the true motivation for the crime, but we do know the details of the crime and that our two genius killers, also known as Leopold and Loeb, attempted to get away with the perfect crime. And while they were extremely intelligent, they were not veteran criminals, for they failed to cover their tracks appropriately, and they served their sentences. Richard Loeb being murdered in prison, and Nathan Leopold serving 33 years. Because now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Derek Izzy Show. Hey, if you can do me a favor, if you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, go and write a five-star review. We need more reviews. That actually helps the show get out there and get noticed and put on these true crime and historical podcast lists. We need more reviews. Just write a five-star review, and you might get mentioned on the show. Use promo code Derek Izzy, D-E-R-E-K-I-Z-Z-I, and get $20 added to your account on your first deposit. And maybe, just maybe, you'll compete against me in a tournament. The biggest tournament I was in, just to give you a little bit of a breakdown of how, how often I play this game, there's all kinds of little awards that you can get. One is if you play, if you play 10 matches a day, for three months, then you get like five extra bonus dollars. If you do it for six months, you get another bonus. If you do it for nine months, you get another bonus. If you do it for a year, you get an even bigger bonus. So I am now up to 84 days in a row of playing at least 10 matches. With my biggest win in a tournament with a $60 entry fee, 
I won first prize of $300. So if you're, if you're as good as I am, it can be a part-time job for you. Solitaire Cubed, promo code Derek Izzy. Good day.